0: Know who your customers are. There's so many people that don't spend adequate amount of time developing their ideal customer profiles. So go extremely deep, right? What we always say is go a mile deep and an inch wide, not a mile wide and an inch deep.
1: This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Arman Shrocki. Each week, Arman will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, a, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curvey.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot
2: Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm pleased to have Patrick Parker with us. He's CEO at sasspartners.io. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Armand. Great to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you guys do.
0: Sure. So at SaaS Partners, we have two primary functions. The first one is to help technical founders execute winning go-to-market strategies. And the second is to help non-technical
2: founders build award-winning products. What about yourself, your background, what you have done in the past? How did you come up you know, with the idea of this entity and you should help these non-technical founders and SaaS companies. Why did I get so crazy to
0: start my own business is the question, right? So, long story short, I, I spent over a decade, a very long decade, as a big four consultant, primarily as a as a software security architect. And we just had a a history of kind of overpromising and under-delivering. And it felt wrong. So at the end of these you know, multi-million dollar projects, we're talking nine figure software implementations, primarily in the health tech space. We would get to the end of it and we'd go to deliver the actual product that we were building out and the customers just weren't satisfied. They weren't, the products that we were building weren't meeting the needs. And the, the reason was there was a major gap within the communication process. So essentially what was happening is, the users weren't being included, the the ultimate end users weren't being included throughout the process, so they were kind of in the dark, and long story short, we go to turn over that product and it doesn't meet the needs, the way that they actually work and operate in the environment. So I ended up leaving with uh, a couple of other architects who were good friends of mine that operated at a very high level. We founded SaaS Partners and then started taking a, a human-centered approach to design and development, which has you know, really helped give us a, a springboard to success. So in the the past five years, we've operated under what's called a studio model, where when our developers roll off of projects, and they don't have another client project to go on, they start actually building out products that we design and develop and ultimately take to market. So in the past five years, I've launched five different SaaS companies. All five of those are now generating over a million dollars in revenue. Two of those have, are on the, the venture track. So we've raised capital for two of those seed rounds that are that are performing well, and just continuing to grow and build out and
2: and help founders succeed. And you mentioned $1 million revenue, that's a very, you know, in SaaS world, that's a very good milestone to have. Because essentially, when you get to $1 million, you know, ARR, you have created the minimum system that you needed. At that point, you can accelerate. Until then, you are just building these minimum systems of marketing machinery, the sales machinery, you know, the support machinery, customer success machinery, development, QA, whatever, name it, all of the components that you need in order to have that successful SaaS company. And normally what it happens is it takes years to get to 1 million ARR, but it takes months to double that. So, you know, it's just the difficult part seems to be exactly that. So, what would be the kind of you know topic that you would say you are very passionate about it? If you you know had uh, these SaaS companies in front of you and you wanted to talk about the topic that benefits them and is something that you are very kind of you know behind it and you have been engaged and you have a lot of experience, expertise there, what is that kind of topic that you would pick?
0: Yeah, so I I excel in the the dirty work. I'm absolutely customer obsessed. So, everything from user experience to customer success and onboarding with the areas that a lot of companies really struggle with retaining clients and with ensuring that they actually receive the unique value proposition that you sold them all in, in the first place, ensuring that they get those benefits of the product and become advocates for. The actual product that they're using so that we can turn one user into 10, 10 into 100, 100 into 1000, etc. So I do a, a lot of work in preventing companies from failing, uh, which starts out very early. There's a statistic out there that 91% of all startups fail. And I think that the majority of that could be prevented if they would just do the hard work first. And what I mean by that is The market research, spending time defining their ideal customer profiles, understanding where their audience hangs out, picking the right marketing channels, et cetera, so that they can go extremely deep in understanding who they are trying to serve and exactly what the pain points are of that audience uh, and how to best deliver that solution. That's where I spend the majority of my time. And then on the backside of that, again, making sure my customers are happy, making sure that they want to be the biggest promoters of my business, right? Those are things that keep down my marketing costs while helping to multiply the number of customers that I have.
2: You mentioned, you know, getting the hard work done up front and, you know, doing uh, those kind of marketing analysis first and understanding the needs and everything and all of those things. What is the biggest factor you have seen that it really plays a big role? Is it the timing of the company? Is it the team and the initial founders? Is it the maybe the technology and the platform and the product they choose? Is it starting from a customer, not just a starting, you know, with no customer? What, what is the kind of that pattern that in your mind plays the biggest one, biggest role that from, you know, when you see that, you see, okay, that big factor is there for me. So it increases the chance of success.
0: Yeah, well, let let me answer that question a different way and and say these are kind of the three biggest areas where I see early stage founders failing, Uh, three biggest mistakes that I see them them making. And, And the first one, and we already touched on it a little bit is failing to research the market, right? don't make assumptions about your market. Just because a founder has an issue that they're trying to overcome in their business doesn't mean that it's applicable to all businesses within their industry. I see so many founders build out entire products to solve a problem that they have. They then try to take that to market only to find out that the rest of the market operates differently. So that's, that's one thing. The second thing, know who your customers are, there's so many people that don't spend adequate amount of time developing their ideal customer profiles. So go extremely deep, right? What we always say is go a mile deep and an inch wide, not a mile wide and an inch deep. And then the third thing I think is, is knowing who your competitors are. One of my favorite quotes is from Mark Andreessen, and he's said that software is literally eating the world, right? And so the probability that there's another company already out there trying to tackle that same problem that you're trying to solve is extremely high right? There's over 25,000 SaaS products currently in existence. A thousand new ones get launched each and every year. So it's highly competitive, highly saturated. Uh, so you have to know who your competitors are and what's out there. And so I think a lot of, of failures could be prevented uh, just by actually validating that there is a need for the product that you're, or, or service that you're trying to deliver. The second biggest mistake that I see is, is failing to validate the business model, right? Can you have, can you find a a scalable channel where you can turn a dollar into three, three into 10, you know, and continue to scale that out as you grow. And then the last thing that I see is just the, we talked about it a little bit, which is, is customer obsession, failing to retain customers. You know, it's no secret that it costs more to acquire new clients than it does uh, to retain existing ones. So, you know, high churn is, is, Definitely a company killer's a huge mistake that I see people struggle with, especially in the early days. And it just goes back to how you onboard and how you address issues that arise in your business, how you support your customers, and
2: ensure that they actually receive the benefits that you're you're uh, promoting. One thing I have seen as a pattern, as you said, you know, I think your data was you mentioned that there are um, twenty five thousand SaaS companies. You mentioned thirty five. Over twenty five thousand. 25,000 SaaS companies, and you mentioned that thousands are starting every year. So that pattern, maybe that's one of the things that uh, I have seen a pattern that some of these these SaaS companies, they do a fantastic job in order to understand the market and create the product and spending a fair amount of time at the beginning rightfully to fine-tune the idea and understanding everything and polishing and building. But at the end of the day, the product doesn't have a very high barrier to entry, and the barrier to entry for that product is so low that as soon as they figure it out and they come to market, somebody else who just look at that and understands that's the need, and they have proven that the need is there, but the product is so simple to build, then that becomes essentially a problem because they have taken all of the time and money and budget to really get there, and somebody else looking at it and just in a fraction of time can get there. And they have created something that is simple. It's too simple, and it doesn't work because, as a business, because now the barrier to entry is is too low, and and that's partially because there are so many SaaS companies, right? So you can really go teeny tiny with any kind of use use cases, and just find that use case and build a solution for that very problem. So, have you seen this pattern? How do you advise, you know, someone to really understand that before starting the company and putting all of that efforts and think through that and say, OK, what I'm going to build at the end when I you know, find it, it's not going to have the very, you know, the barriers to entry might be a problem for that marketing wise. Have you seen it? How do you overcome that?
0: Yeah, I mean, at, at its core, every product, every service has to solve a problem, right? If it doesn't solve a problem, then you have a problem right? It won't get traction. It won't sell. Ultimately, you're going to fail. So the biggest thing that, that I see and that, that we push our clients to do uh, and that we do ourselves is we always focus on one problem, one feature, right? Building out a minimum viable product, taking that MVP to market and actually testing that market as rapidly as possible with different ICPs and different buyer personas, right? That's something that, that helps us very quickly validate whether or not that SaaS company, that SaaS product has legs and we can actually build it out and scale it. Uh, And then we look at uh, how we can continue to add value through additional features, through building out new tiers, and new sets of features that are going to basically continue to help in the evolution of uh, the usage of that platform. And so when you talk about low barriers to entry, you know, software development is something as a whole that the price has come down significantly on in years, thanks to globalization and outsourcing. And so it is very quick and very easy to build a product. So you have to look for opportunities to differentiate, right? And there's always going to be a need to guard against new entrants. But again, if you are, if you have foundational, like strong foundational practices that you have already implemented in your business, then someone that comes late to the party, unless they're have a new take or unless they are building something revolutionary or, or, you know, adding to the convenience uh, of it, they're going to have problems competing with an already established player. So again, it's one of those things where if you, you focus on building out the processes, you focus on really understanding your customers and, and knowing how to continue to multiply those, you should
2: have no problem in guarding against those new threats. Of course the key factor here since you are helping non technical SaaS founders, you are they are relying on you on the technical part to build them the product they need and the reusability probably plays a big role, I guess, right? So on, on your side if you can't really I don't know if you have building blocks, if you have some things that really helps you to really bring them to market faster because essentially that's your expertise. You are working with several companies, several SaaS companies, you will know better that these patterns are kind of repeatable. So you can really build some reusable components maybe. Can you explain a little bit about that part that how important it is and what is the advantage on your side versus somebody, a founder, a company, start from scratch and just start to you know, build everything, building blocks all by themselves?
0: You know, you kind of hit it on the head. There's there's benefits to both sides though, and I wanna make that clear. Not just with our company and the speed to be able to, to actually build and, and launch a product, but also for our clients as well, right? They're going to save on cost because we have already built out a lot of these. So we build things out in a modular way that essentially becomes plug and play, right? We have a base platform that we use here that we're able to reuse across clients because most SaaS companies have the same needs, right? In terms of customer management, in terms of, of billing and revenue cycle management, uh, in terms of onboarding, in terms of, of, know, kind of the ancillary processes or features that they'll need. So as a base, that's a, a great way to make it more cost effective, especially when launching MVPs and then continuing to build and scale out new features based on the requirements that we have for our clients. So it is something that that is absolutely based on best practices. So we follow what's uh, the industry standards, industry leaders, who's done it really well, copying with, with, Paste, right, as I call it, instead of copy and paste, understanding what works and why it works. That's the biggest thing. And then being able to promote that to our clients and give them sound advice in terms of how to, to successfully take that product to market.
2: And you have found particular domains or particular verticals that you focus on, or from your perspective, you are looking at all of the SaaS companies and all of the segments, not being selective in in some areas?
0: No, I mean, at the end of the day, being able to deliver a, a product that meets the needs of a particular audience all depends on your ability to conceptualize and understand what those pain points are and to be able to build out a solution. So we build primarily custom software for these SaaS companies. Uh, We build out custom software internally. We've done it across a number of different industry niches and market verticals. So we've become very good at extracting the information that we need from our clients throughout the discovery phase to go around, design something that will actually meet the need, and then take it to market. So we are industry agnostic, as we say. It doesn't matter what type of industry you are in as long as we can
2: understand and conceptualize that need, we can build a product for it. And as you see the SaaS company is going through the evolution, of course, if you look at 20 years ago, there was no SaaS company. So today we have, you know, mature cloud platforms that they are not just the infrastructure like old days. It's not just the power and internet connection and just giving you the servers and boxes. They provide more than that. Now they are offering you services, for example, that you can, you know, use inside your. So, so many of these services are really fantastic capabilities that before you had to spend a lot of money to create them. And now you can just use that service. Now, as we move forward and we see, you know, what's coming next for the SaaS world, and you have seen that more and more layers are available to SaaS companies and to you guys to build those solutions. How do you see moving forward it would work? Because right now we have services, we have the delivery mechanism that is named at the cloud and it's very, you know, you can deliver the software to the masses and they can utilize it easily with no installation or something. You know, all of those technologies are available to us now and then we have the microservices and serverless environment that can scale very fast um, and you don't have to keep all, on all of the servers all the time. You can, you know, just go from almost zero to thousands in a matter of seconds or milliseconds sometimes. So, So what are the next things that you see the need and you know it's coming because market needs it and it's going to really be the future of these kind of, New age of software development.
0: I think a couple of things that are undeniable is is the role that uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning play currently in the environment. the The innovation happening there in that sector is is happening at a pace that we've never seen before. Um, I think that's something that's extremely interesting. I think the the way that web three and blockchain continue to develop and play out is going to be extremely interesting as well. Um, And eventually hardware is going to catch up to the point where a real metaverse will actually come to fruition, right? We're probably... Five, 10 years away from that. They have the the lighter side on the VR already there, but moving into AR and, and mixed reality, I mean, I think that's something that is going to take off and really change the way that people interact uh, with technology more than anything. I want to back up to one other thing that you said a little bit earlier, uh, just about what is possible and kind of the evolution of, of SaaS. And I, I think the biggest thing that I see now that I'm, I'm really excited about is just the ease and affordability of actually creating a business now, right? For entrepreneurs, it's a great time to be an entrepreneur. There are so many SaaS companies out there that are literally a business in a box that give people who otherwise may not have the means a platform that they can use to actually build and scale a business. We've done it uh, in health and fitness. We've done it in the equine industry and a couple of others. But it's something that's extremely uh, exciting to watch just as people transition into you know remote work being the new normal, having more time back in their day, having the opportunity to build out side hustles that have the opportunity to eventually replace their their income and give people more meaning and purpose in life as they're able to deliver value for clients. So that's something else that I'm I'm really excited that I see in terms of the kind of great resignation if they as they've called it at sometimes and the great reset eventually. That's something that I'm really excited to see is just the the availability of those types of products and the opportunity that exists now for for entrepreneurs.
2: And how do you see the role of, I would say, you can name it different. You can name it no-code, low-code revolution. You can name it building the builder. In a way, the way it works, you are really building something to give to others that they can build their own using your tool. So rather than giving them a form, giving them a workflow, giving them a chart, giving them a dashboard or whatever component you can think of in any software application, you're actually giving them something that they can use that to build what they want or configure or, you know, with less effort. So that's something that you see more and more in the market. And rather than people ask for that component, they are asking for the component builder in a way that a non-technical person can build the component so, of course, if a developer needs to build it, that's different. But we are talking about, you know, the reason we say no code or low code or tool, it's, it's just for non-technical users. Do know. I
0: think you're right there. And I think that's something that kind of the evolution of, of low and no code goes kind of hand in hand with the advancement in artificial intelligence and machine learning, right? Where you talk about the skill sets that will become the most desirable going forward is not going to be software engineering right? You'll need some level of that. But what's going to become even more important is design, right? Is going to be user experience and the ability to understand user behavior, capture that user behavior and turn it into paying customers. So that's something that going forward without the reliance on having to know how to actually sit down and write code, you're still going to have the same flexibility and the same opportunity. So it's essentially leveling the playing field and putting a more of an emphasis on you know, almost the the marketing
2: functions and the design functions. So it's interesting. The point that you're bringing up is if you go back to 20 years ago, maybe development and coding was so more challenging and people were spending more time there. And as the development techniques and more services become available and more of these tool makers are becoming available, then people are spending now more time on the design as they should be and the total experience and providing the best user interactivity and user experience that is a still a very time-consuming task and very much, you know, not super easy to do. And, and it requires, you know, of course, a lot of experience to make done. So that's a great point.
0: It does, and there's a an steep learning curve, too. That's, that's the other thing, right? Same thing with, with Web3 and, and blockchain. There's a steep learning curve. The user experience is the, one of the biggest barriers to mass adoption. And so you, you go through these different iterations where you have these major advancements in technology, whether that is in software or hardware, but it still takes you know ample amount of time after those are released for adoption to actually take place within the market. And so that's the period of time where the people who excel in those areas are going to do very well, and anyone that doesn't excel in the actual design and user experience is going to fall behind and eventually cease to exist.
2: So you mentioned the next generation, in a way, Web3 and other you know, even the way we store data, we share data, with full transparency, distributed data storage. If you look at Web1 to Web2, maybe you know, it was very clear distinction because you added a lot of more content developers and essentially from web one that you had to just write HTML to web two that you could really go there in these platforms and create a lot of content yourself. So you democratize. So in, in fact, during that process, you know, the, we democratized the content development and adding more content to web and everything. And data ownership. and And data, yeah, absolutely. And how would you define or how do you, would you explain it to a non-technical person, the movement from Web 2 to Web 3? I like to use the example of Google Docs, right? Most
0: people are familiar with Google Docs or with uh, Microsoft Word that's in the cloud, right, where you can now have a collaborative document where people can go in, they can read, write, they can edit, right? I, I liken that to Web 2. And Web 3 would be the same thing where people can read, write, and edit, but now they also have the ability to create their own new platforms, which is a copy of, of Google Docs, for example, that they can actually monetize, retain ownership of their own data and provision access in a trustless manner that they're able to scale out and provide access to to anyone that is interested in consuming that data, accessing that data or consuming that content.
2: It's a great way to look at it. So as you said, very static HTML versus, a, you know, Google Doc that. You have you know edit, editing and you can create, but then uh, uh, after that you need to monetize it, and then Web three is going to provide you the best way to it. That that's a very good point. Interesting.
0: The other interesting thing there is, I think that there's so many business models that don't exist yet that will be born as a result of Web three, just because of the flexibility that you have with data ownership, uh, and I think the people or the the companies that that figure that out are going to do very very well.
2: So, it's a great news for entrepreneurship too. So, the way I see it is now you're not just developing content, you're actually creating, you know, maybe even some micro businesses you can, you know, even create around that content that you just created because now the delivery and the ownership and monetizing everything is going to become available at a totally different stage compared to where it was before. When you look at, for example, you know, Web 2 versus Web 1, it didn't happen overnight. So it took some time and we moved gradually from Web 1 to Web 2. In between and where we were somewhere in between, some people were not sure if it is really going to be just a hype, it's it's not going to be real or it's going to be real. So Web 2 and then after a while, then there was no doubt. Everyone knew that is going to be real. So if you go back timeline-wise, I can say that probably 2007, 8, 9, still people were thinking if it's going to be real or not, Web2. And then 2010, 11, 12, everyone knew that it's, it's real. Now they can see it. There's no way to go away.
0: I'll tell you a funny story real quick. So one of the uh, first ventures that I launched right out of college was a web development company. We were building out websites primarily for local businesses, restaurants, uh, concert venues, and then local bars and and clubs, right? And I was doing this in Nashville, Tennessee, where I'm, I'm originally from. This was in 2006. And so this is when everything went from just an informational page about a business to starting to have those features like, Interactive menus, online ordering, starting to have the ability to purchase concert tickets and things like that online where it became widely available. And so I was going into these businesses and I was telling them about this thing that was coming, right? About all these new things that they'd be able to do. And there was, I I was met with such reluctance, right? A lot of times I was stonewalled and people didn't understand the value right? That was there with being an early mover, being an early adopter of that new technology. You know, their opinion was, you know, you're going to charge me how much to do this? My customers don't find me online, right? My customers know me from the yellow pages or know me from friends or word of mouth or whatever it may be, or seeing my advertisement out on a billboard, you know, whatever that is. So ultimately that company failed. I learned the the need to be able to effectively communicate and to, to be a better storyteller. That's something I learned from that experience. But going back, a lot of those people years later reached out and were like, hey, are you still doing this? They remembered me because they were like, yeah, this guy had told me about this stuff, that it was coming. I didn't listen. I should have. Uh, and here I am late to the party. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that, that, that company ended up failing, but a uh, valuable lesson learned. And it's, it's one of many failures that
2: have, have ultimately led to success. Yeah, timing matters. If you look at Web3 now, where, where do you think we are? we are? We are in the middle. We are at the beginning. We are at the end. We're so early.
0: If, if, you, look at, if you look at great innovations, like think about the automobile for example, right? From the time that that the first automobile was was manufactured to the point of mass adoption took over 50 years, right? If you look at the same thing with the internet from its inception till mass adoption, you're looking at 25, 30 years, right? So the curve is definitely lessening, um, but there's still going to be time required for people to be able to adjust to the new way of thinking, right this is a new way of of interacting and engaging uh, not only with the actual internet itself but also with the the content and the new way of doing things right? So it's foreign to people. so they're gonna have to catch up and learn. Is this a a generational issue? I don't think so. I think it's it's a user experience issue. I think it's a, a training and an educational issue. so once it continues to develop and become more mainstream and has more applications, I think that it'll catch on. I don't think that it's going to take 25 years like the internet, but I'm guessing it'll take somewhere between seven to 10 based
2: on some of the obstacles that still have to be overcome. And and when we moved from Web 1 to Web 2, it provided zillions of new opportunities you know, to create different businesses in software and in technology and in digital world in general. Do you think that is is going to be the same when we move from Web 2 to Web 3. It's going to multiply the opportunity. It's already happening.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's already happening. I mean, if you just look at the, the global venture funding, uh, the majority of that, the past year, the past 18 months, has been focused on Web 3 blockchain. That's where a lot of, of you know, investors are really focusing their, their time and efforts because they see the opportunity. Now, there's definitely naysayers that say, hey, this is a marketing ploy. This is a, a massive hype cycle that's happening right now. But if you look at the innovation that's actually taking place in decentralized finance with non-fungible tokens, NFTs, cryptocurrency it's, itself, even though it's it's in a you know, crypto crash right now almost, that's going to rebound. And I think when you look at who the real players are, who the people are, the, the companies that are really adding value... I liken this to to a, a big shakeout, right? Just like you had with the dot com bubble, where the companies that survived are now some of the biggest companies in the world. Same thing is going to happen with cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain technology. So you're going to have, uh, I'll call it the great shakening, and hope, hopefully that catches on somewhere. But um, you know, all the other companies that, that can't keep up or that you know don't provide the the amount of value or the flexibility, and use cases, they're going to cease to exist.
2: Yeah, no, makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, history rhymes, right? So this is really see the same patterns. And as you said, I mean, in .com era, you're right. The ideas were solid, but technology was not there yet. Maybe users were not ready to adopt the new technology yet. But we saw all of those ideas at one point came to fruition, maybe five years later, maybe 10 years later. But we could see that essentially, you know, and and some of those, as you said, they survived and they were behind the idea. They didn't, you know, hold the business and they could make a great business out of it. Uh, Makes perfect sense. I'm going to ask you at the end to Maybe uh, suggest a book or a publication that has helped you, and maybe that can help you know our audience as well. If you could uh, recommend, please. So so many to choose from. I'd say
0: uh, Peter Thiel's Zero to One" is uh, is one of my favorites. Big fan of that one. And just in personal development, "How to Win Friends and Influence People" that's another great one um, that everybody should read. You know, there's there's so many. I'm an I'm an avid reader. There's no telling how many books I read a year, how many articles, how many everything else. I so just, just love to be a student of life and continue learning and just understanding different people's perspectives, right? Understanding the, the, the experiences that they've had, uh, what they've learned from it, and then sometimes and, and hopefully how I can avoid some of the same mistakes that they made.
2: That's fantastic. Thank you very much, Patrick, to be with us. It was a great discussion. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Armand.
1: Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ashragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sassscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve a, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curvey.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot